Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Today's podcast is going to be a fun one as we dive back about a century into a historical story that many of you might actually know. So if you if you know this story, hang with us because I'm telling you, you're going to learn a lot more um, as we as we go along with our guests today. But for a lot of you, you may not know the story of Ernest Shackleton. He was a really famous Arctic explorer back in the early 1900s, trekked through the South Pole, um, set some records, made some scientific discoveries, led a couple of different voyages on first the ship Nimrod, and then on the ship that we're going to be talking about today called the Endurance. Ron and I are fascinated by this because of the grit and the mental toughness from this one man and his crew, which we're going to dive into quite a bit today with our guest, Margot Morell, who is the leading expert on Shackleton's voyages and journeys and what he and his crew overcame, uh, like I said, over 100 years ago. So this is a story of tenacity and strength and one of the biggest survival stories that I've ever read about. Um, Very, very well known, uh, Ernest Shackleton for his leadership abilities, studied in uh, leadership um, research throughout uh, the last several decades. And uh, Ron and I have both known about this story separately. This was the funny thing about this. And and part of the reason that Tara and I wanted to spend a little time talking about this, I had no clue. I had heard the name Shackleton. And and I think most people have that, you know, kind of a distant. Oh, yeah, there was some, you know, wild, crazy guy back in in the early 1900s that that was doing things in the Antarctic. Um, But that's about all I knew. And I had an I had a leadership student. Um, I was doing actually a research research for my own book, and and this was about maybe three years ago. And one of my students said, "Hey, you need to check out this book," and it was called Shackleton's Way. Uh, and as I was doing research, they they recommended that, and I said, "Huh, let me check this out." And that was my introduction to Shackleton's story, or at least the story with the endurance. Um, and I was just, you know, you guys know if you listen to the podcast, I'm fascinated by survival stories. You know, what is it about, um, you know, those people that, that make it and those don't? You know, we had Lawrence Gonzalez on talking very, you know, very deeply about that. And so this is, this is near and dear to me, and I, I, like, to, I like to pick the brain of, of, of survivors. So that's how Shackleton came on my radar. And I just, after I read it, I was just like, holy moly, how, do we, how does not everybody know this story? Because some people will make the claim it's the greatest survival story ever. Um, I think it needs to be in that discussion. I think it, it's, it'd be hard to say which one's, you know, greater than, than another. Uh, that's kind of subjective. But this is right up there. What he pulled off uh, with his crew, I think there was 28 of them total with, with uh, Shackleton included. Um, what he pulled off with that crew uh, was nothing short of uh, amazing. And so, I don't know, Tara, I, I think you – Gosh, you've known you've known about this a long time. You you did. I think you did 
like research stuff in school about this, right? Is that if I yeah, remember? Yeah, right? I, I actually I was trying to remember that. I think it was actually back in sixth grade. I did a I did a school report on on this story, but when I really got into it and started reading a lot of books was uh, in my mid to late twenties because. Um, you know, from 20 to 30, I think my life was trying to find how to um, punish myself as much as I possibly could in the elements. So whether it was suffering, total constructive suffering. Um, and Shackleton it, it, uh, was just fascinated. Uh, I was fascinated by the story. Um, he went through uh, his biggest challenges when he was like 27, 28, 29. And so it just rang really true to what I was uh, trying to achieve with mountain climbing and rock climbing and, you know, building snow caves and sleeping in them just to punish yourself out in the elements. And, um, and so his story just by far blew me away. Um, a little bit of background on the story that we're going to dig into today. Um, this goes back to early 1915 aboard the ship Endurance. This ship became trapped in the ice and 10 months later, (laughs) it sank. Uh, Shackleton's crew had already abandoned the ship, of course, but they did live on it for a while while it was floating on the ice. And then in April of 1916, they set off in three small boats, eventually reaching Elephant Island, taking five crew members, Shackleton uh, went to go find help to save the rest of the crew. And in a small boat, the six men spent 16 days crossing 1,300 kilometers of ocean to reach South Georgia. And then on top of that, they trekked across the island to a whaling station. The remaining men from the Endurance that were rescued late in August 1916, so several months later, uh, they all survived every single member of that entire crew lived and all of it attributed to shackleton because of the 18 months that he was able to keep his crew alive yeah i mean the the, if you're following this this uh, maybe it's a little hard to put this together if you haven't read the book or there's several books by the way um this was just one of them and you know over 18 months and so there was there was multiple parts of this story they were in, you know they were on the ship for 10 months then it sank then they're on the the moving ice flow so basically they're camping on moving ice if you can just imagine that then they make a trip to elephant island across you know the ocean um stranded there and then make another trip so i mean they're just multiple subplots here multiple sub uh, stories of survival and and i just think to myself you think i've never been to antarctica and i'd love to go there but it's the one of the most they say that it's the coldest continent on the um, planet and of course nothing grows there and and so can you imagine being stranded in that kind of an environment for over 18 months um there's nobody coming to the rescue. They didn't have radios that nobody, it was the middle, we were in the middle of a war. And so everybody was dedicating their resources to fighting a war. And there was no, you know, thoughts of, Hey, we need to go rescue Shackleton. So they knew that when that, when they, especially when the ship sank, they said, we're on our own. We got to either save ourselves or we're going to die. And, you know, Shackleton's been criticized for, for more than a few things. Quite honestly, he shouldn't have probably been in that situation. He shouldn't have let his crew into that. And he had some arrogance that, that was around that. But I would say he recovered well. 
the thing is, is uh, he adapted. He quickly changed from this is not an expedition. This is now a survival. Um, and he really was keenly aware that this was about keeping his crew alive. And so he shifted gears quickly um, and adapted many times throughout the, the, the 18 months to, to do that. And to me, that it's just an amazing story of mental toughness and, and just great leadership. Because I think to myself, even with his flaws, um, the things that he did well, I, I really believe that crew would not have survived without his leadership. And so that is so fascinating to both Tara and I um, of how do you do that? You know, I, I get I get tired or, or cold when I go out for a, you know, a five mile jog when it's, you know, 10 degrees out. I can't imagine living in that environment for that long and, and trying to survive that. Um, it's hard to even just wrap your mind around that this is a real story. It's so true. Um, I mean, you're talking about like negative 20 degree temperatures and, uh, and, and lack of food and, and lack of shelter and, and having to make all of that last. So what we're super excited about um, is to be able to talk with someone today that is quite literally probably the leading expert on this journey and has transcribed many of the memoirs from some of the crew has uh, spanned five continents in search of firsthand accounts of uh, Shackleton's leadership strategies. And she has also co-authored the book that Ron mentioned that he read a few years ago called Shackleton's Way. We are so excited to talk today to Margot Morell. Margot, thank you so much for being with us uh, here today. I wanted to get started just by asking you, just give us a little bit of background. How did you get started on uh, your life journey, which has been over the course of four decades, of learning about and researching the survival story of, of Ernest Shackleton? Yeah, I think uh, anybody who comes across the Shackleton story, you want to know more about it. And so there were wonderful books by Shackleton, by biographers. So I kind of went through one after another, but none of them quite answered the question that I wanted uh, to, to know, which was how on earth did he do this? So I started first collecting all the books I could get a hold of there were at the time there was there were a number of you know it was before the internet so there were book dealers who focused on Antarctic books and and we all it was like a little club and we all knew each other and I started 1991 I started spending my vacation time first going to the UK to search out primary source information I went to Scott Polar Research Institute which is part of Cambridge University and I said I'm here because I'm interested in the Shackleton you know, endurance expedition and I'd like to see the transcripts of the diaries from the expedition we can't wait to dig in on on what you have learned over all of this work, but I have two quick questions. One, the first one that I can't help, but Ron, Ron teaches undergrad and graduate students at the university. Ron, how do you feel when you hear her say that this all started when she was a 13-year-old sitting in her classroom, really analyzing the ability of the teacher to hold it together? <laughs> well, first of all, I love it because I always tell my students, like, we can learn from bad leadership. Sometimes it'll of the best lessons. Now, I don't usually see 13-year-olds doing that though. So I right. think you were, you were ahead of the game, Margo. <laughs> I'm very analytical. Yeah. And then and then Margo, really quick before we get into a lot on Shackleton, 
you've been Antarctica a couple of times. That is not a normal continent for people to take a summer vacation to. I'm just so curious. What was that like for you? Well, the first one, the first uh, trip was to get as far south as possible Mm -hmm. to the bottom of the Ross Sea, McMurdo Sound, which is where the main American bases today called Mac, Mac Town, McMurdo's, McMurdo um, Station. And, uh, and that's where the, all the expeditions really took off from that area. And the second trip, and that was in uh, February, it was exactly well, like 26 years ago, I think, in 1995, exactly this time. So, and the second trip was in the footsteps or in the path of the endurance expedition. And that's the other side of Antarctica. The intention, Shackleton's intention was to make the, what he called the last great polar journey, the crossing of the Antarctic continent. And it was from south of Argentina all the way to the other side, south of New Zealand to McMurdo mm-hmm. Sound. So, yeah, how, how did that feel being, uh, you know, as you said, in the footsteps of, of his journey? Did you feel, I know this may sound a little hokey, did you feel any connection? Did you, did it, did, was it, you know, was it kind of a little eerie? Kind of uh, gives me chills just hearing it. <laughs> Well, we were at South Georgia, which is, of course, where he he and Crean and Worsley did the crossing, which was considered undoable. And and they make this mistake at one point, and they're coming over at a place called Possession Bay, and you I could. I felt like I could see them in mm. there, you know, all roped wow. together, you know, these tiny little figures coming across. And then we were an, at another day, we were actually at a landing on a place that I, I'm trying to think with the, anyway. And I had this really only, it only happened once, this uh, sort of transcendent experience, transcendental experience where it felt like the top of my head had lifted off and, was just one with the universe. And I I think, you know, who knows if it's where, you know, the magnetic pole is, or, I mean, it's actually on the other side, but if it's, you know, just something where you think, is that why Shackleton kept going back? And because he would have these spiritual moments. And I think that was part of the allure of going back there. It's amazing. I, I I guess that wasn't a hokey question. That's exactly the answer I was hoping for. (laughs) <laughs> that, that uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of that person, you know, I, I get, you know, I get, I get, I feel like I have a connection to, to people like that. So that's great. And, and that Antarctica is on my, on my bucket list. That's, uh, that's pretty amazing. So, you know, everybody, everybody knows the story, or at least you, you should have a pretty good idea what the story is from our intro. But I think you document in the book that there were other uh, expeditions that, that went, you know, kind of wrong. And, and, and some of them were, I mean, they went horribly wrong where they had mutiny, murder and cannibalism. And yet Shackleton not only survived, I think it was, I think it was close to 18 months, but none, none of his men died. What, what was the difference between Shackleton and maybe some of these other disasters, at least in your opinion? Oh, there, it's amazing. The, the, the contrast between these expeditions, there was an expedition called Belgica that was also trapped exactly, almost exactly the same circumstances, the same time. 
And Frederick Cook, who is one of the major polar explorers, writes in his diary, the darkness grows daily a little deeper. Night soaks hourly a little more color from our blood. Most of us in the cabin have grown decidedly gray within two months, though fewer over 30. Our faces are drawn and there is an absence of jest and cheer and hope. Meanwhile, they have been in the trap for the exact same time that the endurance has been trapped. And at the exact same time, equivalent time, Frank Hurley, the photographer, is writing in his diary, it's party time aboard the endurance. Hmm. The captain the cabin has an atmosphere poetic. Macklin is writing poetical verses, and I am doing the same. McElroy is arranging a decolleté, meaning low-cut, dancing rig, while Uncle Hussey, who's the youngest member on board the expedition, is being set by beset by applicants to rehearse accompaniments on his banjo. Wow, what so a great so wait a minute, we're, 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 you know, we're facing death. We're trapped on the ice and, and they're, you know, they're, they're having a good time. And they're I mean, having a party. <laughs> and so, I mean, can we easily point, point that back to that's, that's Shackleton's leadership in action? Well, actually, yes. Shackleton insists that everyone get together and spend their evenings, you know, singing, keeping their journals, playing cards in the cabin together. A year and a half later, Ward Lees is on uh, Elephant Island. He has, at this point, they are very short of food. Shackleton is, has left about six weeks earlier, maybe eight, even eight weeks earlier. And he's kind of already overdue in terms of returning. And Ward Lees writes in his diary, we had a grand concert tonight of 24 turns and so ends one of the happiest days of my life. Mm. Wow. You believe it? And he is the worst, the worst pessimist on the entire expedition. Oh, I love it when that happens too. When the, when the <laughs> pessimist gets turned into the happy morale giving person. I love that. One of the moments that kind of stands out in the endurance expedition is of course, after they've lost the ship, and they're in the lifeboats trying to get to Elephant Island. And they're actually by the flow. And the killer whales congregate around the flow because that's where the algae is that they feed mm. on. So they are in these three tiny little lifeboats, the largest of which is 21 feet long. And they are surrounded by killer whales. And one of them starts to sing. And they're all kind of terrified. And... Marston, who's the artist on board, has a wonderful voice and he starts to sing. And every and people join in if they so on. And Shackleton like blown away by the fact that Marston has done this. And it creates this whole sense of camaraderie for the whole group in getting in, through an incredibly difficult and scary situation. Imagine the power of that. That is amazing. Well, I'm just saying, people that are regular listeners know when's a good podcast for Ron? When the hair on his arm stands up, and it just did. That, that's, I mean, it's so amazing. You're facing what, what, so much uncertainty, and maybe your death, and and you you just break out in song, and everybody, all their spirits are lifted. What a great lesson. Maybe all of us during during the pandemic, maybe we should dance and sing a little bit more. 
well, on the Nimrod expedition, when they're coming back from the attempt on the South Pole, the attempt to reach the South Pole, and of course on crossing South Georgia, one of the things they do is sing to keep their spirits up, and particularly one, you know, what, is, what does everybody know back then? Hymns. And that's what they're singing. Shackleton's favorite hymn is Lead Kindly Light. And when they're absolutely at their wit's end on the Nimrod expedition, they're bare, down to the barest bones of food. He asks Wilde to sing Lead Kindly Light. Yeah, there, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of research behind that. You know, you hear about armies marching into battle singing. And it, it, just, it just lightens the load and, and you know, it deals with that stress, fear, and anxiety that, that we all have. So I think it's a great lesson. And we've had other, we've got other guests on the show talk about that. Let me, let me turn this a little bit, if I can, Margo. One of the things that was kind of fascinating to me, you know, one of the things that, that we like to do on this podcast is, is talk to strong female leaders. And, and one of the things that, that I like to say to my, my developing female leaders is, is don't try to be a man. You have certain innate talents as a woman that you can bring to bear to be a, to be a great leader. And there's this, this interesting thing about Shackleton that he was often described as having a feminine side. And so let me, let me ask you this, Margo, number one, where did that come from? Why did he have that? And, and number two, how do you think that impacted the way he led his, his people? Well, he is very, very thoughtful, very, very concerned about their well-being. He actually grew up in a very female-oriented household. He was the uh, second oldest in a family of 10 children. He had eight sisters. And, his, of course, his mother and, his, and an aunt, I think, also lived with them. And he's described by somebody who knew him on an early expedition as Viking with a mother's heart. And isn't that... Isn't that a wonderful? That is a great um, quote. So I think he's always, you know, concerned about their well-being. He hated it when uh, people took undue risks. And of course, these are all young men on this expedition, mostly in their early 20s. And they're doing things like playing around on floating ice flows. And he would come along and it's like, oh, man, you know, and just give them a look like you know, <laughs> think twice about doing that again. But he, he, Alexander Shackleton, his granddaughter, what stands out about his leadership, she would point to the boat journey where they are, he and five others are in the boat journey, and James Caird going from Elephant Island to South Georgia. And if he notices that somebody is particularly flagging, he orders warm milk to be for everyone. And he doesn't point out, like, I don't think you know, this particular person is doing well. He just says, let's have some warm milk for everyone. And so he he's always, you know, the Viking with the mother's heart. Yeah. And I would say, you know, I've read not only through your book, but through some other uh, research that I've done that almost everybody, everybody that I've read, you know, firsthand accounts of people that were on that crew just they all echoed the same message that they just felt like he really cared about them and and they would have done anything for him and i think that is such a powerful message for for any leader especially leaders in crisis for for the people to think that you know or to believe that you care about them i think that's huge and ron and i were just talking recently about the our our thoughts on leadership in the sense of 
should you as a leader today, let's just say at work, should you care about the person holistically? Should you, should you care about their home life? Should you care about what's going on in their personal development or their personal lives? And I think there's not enough of that anymore. And I think we should. I love that. You know, I happen to hear Zaz Shackleton saying that one time describing that, that moment. But if you ask me and, and somebody did ask me at a program I was doing, you know, like, what's the standout moment to you? And it's that moment where they're crossing South Georgia and Shackleton lets Worsley and Crean go to sleep for five minutes. And what that must have taken, can you imagine the strength, the willpower that must have taken to allow them to go to sleep. He must have, if he had gone to sleep, that would have been the end of every single one of them. Mm. And the strength of being able to say, you take a rest and I'll stand watch. Like, oh man, that's, that is just unbelievably powerful. And that is the ultimate to me, the ultimate in leadership. And that sounds like such a good mother. Mm. Right? Right? Oh. Sounds like something my mom would do. Or father. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, that that parenting mode of leadership, the Viking with the mother's heart. Yeah. Well, there he also had this uh, tendency to not only to watch over everybody, but to give everybody, assign them tasks or roles throughout the journey. And obviously, I think we all know that that drives a sense of purpose for people rather than just following a leader. They actually now are a leader in and of themselves in in the group, especially I think it's so important. And you highlight that, that that he does this during hopeless situation in a hopeless situation that they went through several, several times. What do you think some of the lessons are from that in giving in Shackleton giving these roles and purpose and responsibilities to his mates during crisis to what we're going through and how we can better behave throughout this pandemic. Yeah, that's got to be tough and particularly where you're not seeing people directly. But one of the things, you know, one of the things that Shackleton did, he had these people who were hired to do a particular task turned out not to be very good at that task, but they they bubbled up as good at something else. And Ordley's was the perfect example of that, where he was complete failure as uh, the motor expert, but he, he actually asks to be put in charge of the stores. And in that role, he was unbelievably helpful, you know, contributed seriously to their survival. And I, there's a point though, again, when they were in the boats going from the ice flow to Elephant Island, where Hurley's in the, James cared with uh, Shackleton and he expresses a desire to die. And so Shackleton's, when they land on um, Elephant Island, Shackleton puts Hurley in charge of the cooking. Mm. Like, I'm going to give you a hard job. Not that he, not that he articulates this at all. I'm going to give you a hard job and you're not going to have any time whatsoever to think about, like, I want to lie down and die. <laughs> and I think that's very much a Shackleton and, and maybe it's uh, about giving people, you know, stretching them a little, giving them some 
providing them with some stretch goals. Josh, we had Lawrence Gonzalez, you know, the author of Deep Survival on, and he said a lot of survivors that he researched did exactly that. You know, you break a leg on a mountain at 20,000 feet and what job can I give myself to keep my mind off the fact that maybe I'm about ready to die. So I think it's a great lesson. And I don't know, maybe we can, we can apply that to what we're, we're going through now with, with that. Now, Margo, which one was the, the, was it Hurley, the one that was kind of had the bad attitude and maybe the, the pessimistic attitude and, and maybe the one that was dragging down morale a little bit. Was it, was that him? Well, that's uh, Hurley's one of them. In fact, when, when they lose the, sh- when they have to abandon endurance, Shackleton very carefully divides everyone up into tents. And Hurley's one of the people that he takes into his own tent because he doesn't, he wants to keep an eye on him for one thing. He detests Hurley, meanwhile. But how interesting is it that Hurley, Hurley's photographs and film are the only valuable assets to be salvaged from the expedition. So here's this person that Shackleton really doesn't like, and yet he's actually providing a very valuable service to Shackleton. How amazing is that? But I think with the one you're thinking of is actually the carpenter, who is also providing a very valuable service in raising the sides of the James Caird and decking over the James Caird. But he is the one who is such a problem that at one point Shackleton actually threatens to shoot him if he doesn't knock it off. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah. He's the type of guy who picks, gets drunk on Saturday nights and goes around picking fights with, you know, people on a ship where he's not going anywhere. And they're not going anywhere. (laughs) So it's so, you know, but that's the type of person he is. And, and yet he's an incredibly valuable asset to the expedition. And, and I think that's the way, and here's one of the most powerful things that once they, once they lose the ship, Shackleton is not very good at keeping up his diary, but he starts to use his diary at that point to give himself positive feedback about the men and their situation. And he constantly writes like McNeish is doing a great job on raising the sides of the James Care. Hurley is doing a wonderful job on believe it or not, providing lighting. And, and Ord Lees is doing a great job on organizing the food supplies. And day after day, he writes, the group is all doing well. So he's constantly use, using his diary to provide himself with positive feedback. He doesn't have anyone to talk to. He can't really articulate any of this because everybody hears everything on the, on the ice. The air is so clear down here, down in the Antarctic that Things that you think are, are 10 miles away are actually 30 miles away. You can actually hear hear people speaking a mile mm. away. So it wasn't like he could, could you know, cons- share his thoughts with anyone at all. And everything was immediately around the, the whole group. Wow. And that's brilliant. You know, I, I say to my students, I, I'm a big fan of reflective journaling. And, and I say one of the beautiful things about reflective journaling is you can kind of like be your own coach. Here's Shackleton doing exactly that. He's using his journal to write down. He's coaching himself to, he was probably, and my guess is, you know, he was trying to keep his spirits up for the men. And so, God, what a fascinating example of, of keeping yourself in the right place just by writing to yourself. So wonderful. And, And I think it was Hurley that I was thinking of. And so let me go back to that. How many of us have been around somebody that annoys the crap out of us 
And how many of us want to bring that person closer to us? How many want them in our tent? How many want them in our boat? And, and that's what Shackleton did. And that was just fascinating to me that he took this person that, that he thought was going to be poisonous to morale. And he says, I want to keep this person close so that I can keep an eye on them. And I don't know, I think there's, you know, President Lincoln did this, you know, a couple hundred years ago, you know, a, a team of rivals. He wanted all of his enemies close by so he could keep an eye on them. So I just thought that was fascinating that Shackleton did that. And I don't know if we have the, you know, the people that annoy me, I don't want to be close to them. So I don't know if I have the strength to do that, but. Well, you know, the fascinating thing when he divides everyone up into these tents and then he takes the three most annoying personalities into his own tent and they have no idea what's going on. Yes. It's, it's <laughs> so brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> and and yet everyone else knows exactly what he has done. And he, he as I said earlier, he really doesn't like Hurley. But so the way he connects with Hurley is they play poker every, they play a few rounds of poker every afternoon. And that's what he's doing to keep the lines of communication open with Hurley. And there's a wonderful a quote from Hurley where he has to go through his negatives at one point and has to destroy like 400 of them. And while he's doing that, Shackleton sits with him and keeps him company because he knows it's a painful process. So he's going to sit right there next to Hurley and go and just keep him company while he does this. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, you could see why his, his crew loved him. And, and one of the things they did, and man, I think this is a really powerful lesson for today's leaders, was Lord Lees actually says the secret of our unanimity was that Shackleton had a way of keeping in touch or keeping connected, I should say, is maybe a better way to put it, with his crew in that he would have, at every crisis in the expedition, he'd call them all together so that everyone would hear the same message from him. And like, there was no doubt what the message was. They'd all heard it. They all heard it at once. And when they're trapped in the ice, he, Macklin says, they call, called them all together told us simply and calmly that we must winter in the ice, explained its dangers and possibilities, and set about preparing for winter. But he also has, is they, one after another of them says, he had a nice way of getting into a conversation. You know, he'd, you'd come across him walking on the ice and he'd just strike up a conversation with you. And you think, how many managers do that these days? And to your point earlier, where you were saying, like how many people um, connect with like how, you know, what's going on at home? How are things going? You know, how do you like your job? And, you know, it doesn't need to be even personal, just like what's, you know, what's on your mind? What are your frustrations? Where you see yourself going, you know, whatever. It just, you know, strike up a conversation. I, I feel uncomfortable even making any suggestions. It's just like, just that conversation. What are you going to do when you get home? What do you, you know, I mean, literally that's, you know, go on another expedition and so on. But it was these little conversations one-on-one -on -one that were the glue that held this group together. Man, that, that's so applicable. I just, I'll be honest, maybe it's a little bit of a plug. I just had a coaching call two hours ago and, the person I was talking to said, he goes, I just wish my manager would, would call me and ask me how things are going more often. Mm -hmm. And he just said that he's not doing that. And I go, man, how do you, 
I mean, I think that's important anytime, but during COVID, that's so important to connect with your people. I and mean, I know it's not the same on Zoom, but it, it's, it, you can't get away from that. And it was obviously something Shackleton was really good at. You know, the stuff that I read, he was easy to talk to. You know, you just kind of fell into conversation with him. He was one of those kind of people that, that people really sought out to want to talk to him. And, and maybe there's something, maybe there's a lesson there for our leaders. You know, I, I, as you were saying that, I'm, I'm thinking I, I wrote down a quote and one of the, let me see if I can find it here. Oh, so one of the crew commented that he was a tower of strength and endurance and he never panicked in any emergency. You were talking about the fact that he always seemed to stay calm and he always seemed to have a positive attitude. I don't know. That's fascinating to me. Is there anything that you would, you would add to that? I mean, is, how much, how important do you think that was for the crew to, to, maybe regulate their emotions. Well, it was interesting when I was transcribing these diaries back in 1995, I, I kept, as I got closer and closer to the point where they had to abandon endurance, I think, am I gonna run into you know, a frenzy of panic when they get there? And in fact, it's not at all the case in either, well, in any of the journals, in fact, Worsley, Ordley's, McNeish, or Hurley's. And, and they, they actually write about the fact that Shackleton has stood at the very visibly in every crisis. He's extremely visible. He stands by the mast and, and just with this, you know, confident, not, not cons- you know, concerned, but not worried, like we're going to get through this and says, you know, so as they abandon the endurance, you'd say to Ordley's, don't forget your diary, you know, be sure to bring your diary along with you to Hussey, be sure to bring your banjo along with you. Just some, you know, little pat on the back, just some little personal connection. But he always modeled that behavior. Of, but one of the interesting things, and Tara, you talked about this a little, touched on it a little bit earlier. You know, he wasn't the leader on Nimrod, that he was on endurance. And it's very clear that he's constantly learning and constantly working on and fine tuning his leadership skills over the course of his career, which I think is super interesting and such a encouragement to the rest of us, like just constantly be working at it. You're never going to get to the ultimate spot. There's always going to be a, you know, work, more work to be done. Oh, it's such a great message. And I'm wondering, I know Shackleton also, he has a military background. So even as he is constantly trying to build upon his leadership, he might have been given a little bit of a foundation of how to build that that good leadership from his military experience. But do you think that leadership is usually leadership like Shackleton's, which we've, you know, been referring to his journey and his style of leadership for decades now as being kind of something to um, strive for. Do you think he had a leg up in the sense of when you're put through extremes, the way they were on the expedition, when you're put to the extremes of fear and stress and hunger and cold and uh, responsibility, that it kicks you into hyperdrive when it comes to leadership? Or do you think he would have done that even sitting in the 2021 office working with his group of, of men, you know, pushing paperwork? What do you think? Well, he, you know, he, he leaves school at 16 and 
goes to work in the, and joins the merchant Navy. He's actually too old for the Royal Navy at that point. The cutoff is 14 and a half for the Royal Navy. Wow. So, but he clearly, his first, first captain is a great captain and invites the apprentices for dinner on Sunday nights. And they, they have sing-alongs and, and, you know, establishes some camaraderie. Well, the second captain is the complete opposite of that. And I think what he does is very much notice the, the differences between the good leaders and the bad leaders, the leaders that I wanna be like that and I don't wanna be like that. And I think he's very analytical he, throughout his career, but he really finds himself in these polar expeditions. That's his sweet spot, basically. So whether he would have learned as much in an office that just wasn't his, you know, where he found himself particularly, but, and people actually said that about him, that once he got out to sea, he was like complete, completely different person. What, what I found remarkable, and you touched on this a little bit, but let's go into this a little bit deeper. What I found remarkable is that when he was an apprentice, and I don't, I think it was multiple years where he was an apprentice, and he, he laments that he kind of hated it. He mm. wanted to quit, and he said, you know, why am I doing this? Why, you know, I have no obligation to stick with this. And he, he kind of talked to himself, himself into this idea that I can become tougher, I can learn things. And this is going to set me up for success later. And I think that's such a great message, not only for our podcast, but for so many of my students that, that are in jobs, they go, this sucks. And I want to quit. And I go, okay, before we do that, I, I'm not saying that quitting is not sometimes an option, but before we do that, what can we learn from this? And so I think Shackleton was a great example of, it's not always fun. It's not always fun, but, but that was part of his development. And we might be able to connect the dots to say, that maybe he wouldn't have been such a good leader when it mattered most if he wouldn't have went through that hard time as an apprentice. Well, what he was learning on those in those early years, what and which again he probably wouldn't have known how it was going to apply, but it was extremely valuable. He was learning how to handle cargo. And when it came time to packing cargo, he had everything packed in boxes that were the exact same size. So that they could be picked up by one person and they could be used for multiple purposes. The boxes could be broke. They could be stored easily. And that it was that kind of insight that he had gained from these horrible years of being a, an apprentice on a cargo ship that really were, was valuable, extremely valuable to him later in life and very sort of unlikely way. Yeah, gets it gets used, and and I think that's one of the things that we that you you know being older you you're surprised by some of the things you learn along the way that you had no idea that you ultimately put to use. Yeah, that's actually my next question for you. You clearly know this story so intimately, and all of the characters in the story so intimately. How has this affected your life? How has it uh, changed? even in one single way over the last almost four decades, how you live your life? I'll tell you some, well, two things. First of all, on the front page of the Shackleton's Way website, there is a five minute video. I don't know if you had a chance to watch it, but I actually, when that was being filmed, I was being treated for cancer. 
And I'm using a whole lot of Shackleton lessons in that wow. video. I had been operated on, it was ovarian cancer. I'd been operated on about know, six weeks early before that was filmed. I'd had two rounds of chemotherapy at this point, but I knew that Shackleton would not have told the, the team like what was going on with me. I never, I just I said, you didn't have to send a car for me. I lived in Manhattan at the time, and we were going to be filming this up at Fort Tryon Park. So they, they sent a car for me, and we went up to Fort Tryon Park. It looks absolutely idyllic in the film, but in fact, there are planes going over every two minutes. <laughs> and this interview that looks like it's, you know, five minutes long or so is actually taking two hours sitting on two wooden boxes. I've brought, again, thanks to Shackleton, I have taken along with me a, a bottle of water and the supplies that I might need, a couple of energy bars, just in case. And um, I am totally prepared for like total, you know, any disaster that may or may not occur. And so I've maintained a positive attitude. One of the things that Shackleton does is, you know, you can't always tell the group that, you know, what's going on with you. There's this wonderful moment where they have been in the boats after, on the boat journey from, Ele from the, the ice flows to Elephant Island, and they've been in the boats for three days and they finally get a sunset. They have been desperately trying to get to the west and they find out that they are 30 miles east of where they started out. And Shackleton doesn't tell the group what the actual statistics are, what the numbers are. He says, we could have done better. And he just <laughs> said, and he just reframes the situation. Like, you know what, we're not gonna be able to get to Deception Island, which is what they're trying to get to because there's a whaling station that's open um, all year round there. So we're going to have to end up going east to Elephant Island. But wow. it's hugging that bad information to yourself. And, and I, every great manager that I've ever known always hugs the bad news to themselves. The, the bad managers just let it fly right through. What a, uh. what a great point. And I, I know you brought it back to Shackleton at the end there and away from yourself, but Margo, I have to say, what a triumph to do what you did in the situation that you were in. I didn't know that about you. And I find that to be an amazing story that lines up and you only told us about 25 seconds of it, but congratulations on being able to pull that into your own life situation. That's very commendable and admirable. Well, I know one of the other things you're going to be interested in too is the reason I found this story so fascinating was that I came across it on the heels of a really serious bout of major depression. Wow. As a young person, I had very a huge problem with depression. And it was this story that I saw as a parable. You know, it's like biblical in its scope. And that if I could just keep myself pointed in the right direction, moving forward towards the ultimate goal that I would be okay. And that's what I saw in this story, that it was a metaphor for all the challenges. I know, Ron, that you are a, you know, an athlete and so on. I always say, I don't have to go looking for challenges. Challenges come looking for me. <laughs> <laughs>
love this conversation. It's been a lot of fun. And I could probably continue to do this for, for another hour or two, but let's wrap this up with our signature question, Margo. And, and that is, and you know, sometimes it's kind of hard to answer this because maybe you already answered it, but how, what's your advice to people out there that, that are trying to, you know, be more mentally tough, maybe a little more resilient, uh, resilient and, and be, just be grittier in their lives. Um, what advice would you have for them? You know, you, as you articulate that question, you're making me think of the moment where Shackleton models that behavior, exactly that behavior. And what he does is throw away his, you know, a handful of gold coins and his grandfather's watch. And what he takes is, uh, takes, takes a pen knife and he carefully slices out Psalm 23 and a couple of chapters from Job from a Bible that Queen Alexandra has given to the expedition. And he folds them up and he puts them in his pocket. And that's what is getting him through these extraordinarily difficult times. I mean, nobody goes, as my, actually, as I say in that video, you know, the, they're in a bad situation, but it gets worse and worse and worse. And, and every time we think we're in a bad situation, like, holy cow, you think, we're not stranded on an ice floe hundreds of miles from land with no hope of rescue. Like how incredible is it that they could get through that? And if they could get through that, then for heaven's sakes, what can't we do? Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, Let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.